I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, everyone. You are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On this show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences that feature the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. You might just call yourself a producer, but it's likely that you're probably also a writer, researcher, sound designer, and a load of other things at any point in your process. While a lot of audio production is a one-person show, every story benefits from having an editor or at least a second set of ears. That's why we invited Gimlet Media's Jorge Just to lead a session at the 2016 Third Coast Conference. It's all about helping colleagues turn good work into great work. Jorge, who works on podcasts like Reply All and Heavyweight, walks us through various phases of multiple stories so that we can all become better editors. Okay, here is, first off, this is in really good shape. Um, All right, as we have established, my name is Jorge Just, um, and this is a panel on editing. And one of the questions that gets asked the most, or that I hear a lot, is how do I become an editor? And so since my path is you know, fairly typical, I figured that I'd start up just by telling you how I got here. Um, and it's been a long road. Since I was, I don't know, f- six or seven years old, I knew that I wanted to be an editor. Um, I dressed as an editor every year for Halloween. Um, <laughs> well, my friends were all begging their parents to take them to the theater to see Jaws for the 15th time. I was begging mine to send me to summer editing camp. Um, and yes, I know the Jaws reference is really dating myself, but it was an incredible, I mean, it was a phenomenon. It was really the best, the first, first of the summer blockbusters. And I mean, you should read, it was crazy. You should read up on it. Um, anyway, by the time I got to high school, um, I was pretty much eating, breathing, sleeping, editing. Um, and even still, it turned out that my school had a pretty good, pretty good editing team. So I didn't even make varsity until senior year. Um, (laughs) But it so happens that that was the, the year we went to state championships. So um, I ended up at Trinity College. Um, that's the one in Dublin, not the one in uh, Connecticut. And, uh, and then I went to get my doctorate in editing at uh, University of Cambridge. And from there, it's basically just been you know, one job after another, five years here, 10 years here, just doing the thing that I love. Um, so that's how m- me and how I got here. But, um, 
but really only one or two percent, no more than probably five percent of editors follow a traditional path like that. Um, most of them bounce around doing other stuff. Freelance writing, radio, working with bands, doing humanitarian work for a couple years, location-based audio, you know, just typical stuff. Um, and the reason for that is because, unlike, say, the hedge fund manager, um, editor is in a fixed job description with strict job requirements, um, which is to say, there's no one way to be a good editor. And most editors become, become editors by learning on the job, uh, which isn't, the, you know, it's not what you want out of your surgeon, um, but that is what you get out of your editor often. Um, so either they, uh, they learn after becoming editors themselves or just over the years working with really great people. Um, so becoming a good editor is mostly about doing it and about recognizing your mistakes and learning from them. Um, and that, for the most part, is what this presentation is about. Um, any editor will tell you that a good story needs an arc and a beginning and a middle and an end. That is not true of presentations. This one has a beginning and now it's just going to go and it's going to bounce around and you'll edit it together in your head and uh, give it your own narrative. Um, but so I'm going to talk to you about the things I've learned to do and not do, um, the mistakes I've made, um, and uh, about like, strengths and weaknesses. Each editor has their strengths and weaknesses, um, and, uh, and there's no comprehensive primer on editing. So I'm not even going to try. Um, I will give you a few suggestions. Um, while you're here, while you're still here, there are great editors um, amongst you go and ask them questions and, and talk to them. Uh, ask them like the hard, weird, personal questions that you have with either the producers you work with or the editors that you work with because they won't be, they won't have any stake in it. Um, I also very much encourage you to listen to Deborah, Deborah George's Third Coast session from 2008. It's really great, um, especially for the descriptions of uh, what the actual work is, um, for her tricks on getting producers to make good work, her, you know, the, the imagine, the scenarios she asks them to imagine, et cetera, um, and just a bunch of other good stuff. I also encourage you to read uh, Julia Barton's uh, transom pieces on editing and really basically anything that she has written uh, that you can find on editing. Um, and, uh, and to find and get advice from Peter Clowney, who is here today and um, whose thoughts I have plagiarized for this session. Um, so yes, do those things, please. Don't do them during the session, because um, that's offensive. Um, so basically, uh, the most important thing that an editor does is uh, try to make the work better. Um, and the basic way that you do that is by trying to be an extra couple of folds on your producer's brain. Um, more specifically, um, a few of the things. Uh, I like to help shape pitches, um, stories, ideas, themes, structure, production logistics, um, sometimes listening to tape and looking through transcripts, um, editing drafts, obviously, uh, listening through, giving notes, making changes, gradually refining, copy editing, fine editing. Um, and most important, while you're doing that, trying to also be teaching or at least explaining yourself along the way, right? When I said the most important thing was to make 
the work better, it's also to make the people that you're working with better, right? It's so that they can become editors, um, edit their own work, and you can retire to St. Bart's. Um, let's see. So one of the uh, most important things that you have to be able to do as an editor is what I, the ability to sort of future listen, right? Which is to listen to something that's in a rough state um, and actually hear what it could be, what it has the potential to end up being. Um, this is a learned skill, or at the very least, it is an acquired one. And it's acquired by listening to a lot of stuff and listening to a lot of stuff that is in rough states. Um, and, uh, and it's repi refined by, by practice. Um, if you aren't able to do this, it's going to be a problem. Um, because, uh, I mean, I won't get into the details, but I, uh, well, I worked at a company uh, called Detour, and for like very, very, very good reasons, we would do our early drafts in uh, something that, that radio people hate. Um, let's see if I can figure this out. This is a robot voice. Look up at the dome. It's peaceful here. It's tranquility. There is something about sleeping in a church that adds a sort of serenity to the whole deal. I slept in a We're doing hour-long, hour-long pieces. I would rather um, be on the street and come. Now, uh, it takes a very good editor with lots of foresight to be able to judge that story on its merits um, and to imagine that someday it might turn out like this. Move around the pews and walk down the center aisle. Now you can slip into a pew in the front section or stop near the altar. sleeping in a church that adds a sort of serenity to the whole deal. I slept in a shelter once, got robbed. I would rather be on the street and come into the Gubbio project. It's a different atmosphere. Look up at the blue dome painted high above the altar, and do you see the friar spreading his arms under the Holy Trinity? That's St. Francis. Now, God challenged St. Francis to give up everything he owned and rebuild the church with his own hands. I think about that story every time I'm in St. Boniface because the homeless you see here, like St. Francis, are rebuilding their lives from nothing. So that's the most... Thank you. Um, I should say that while you're listening to that, you are actually in this place, and so it's very enveloping and affecting. Um, that's the most extreme example that I that I can think of of future listening. Sure, sure. It's from uh, it's the, the company's called Detour, and it's a uh, a walking tour of the the Tenderloin in San Francisco. Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
Um, I'm just going to keep doing this. You did not understand why we did it or what it had to do with. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so for those projects, they're these hour-long documentaries, basically, but they're GPS-enabled walking tours. So as you go, the audio, the music, ambience, sound effects are all triggered by GPS as you walk through a space. So if you were to do every every, and that that is adds a layer of complexity to audio stories that. Uh, yeah, it's very extreme. Um, and so to refine, you would have to go travel back to this neighborhood every time to see if it, you know, how it felt, how it walked through, down the block, et cetera. And so uh, it, to save time, we would create these robo-voices, hour-long sessions with different voices for different, ed for different uh, narrators and all of this stuff. Um, and so you had to be able to have to think forward through all of that time and space and energy to get from robo-voice to something like that. Um, so, making, making the worker better, um, teaching. Um, as an editor, especially when working with less experienced producers, um, primary goal is to listen carefully but not just to the piece, right? You also need to be listening to the process and the challenges behind getting the work uh, where it is, the constraints that are keeping it from going to where it needs to be. Um, and so <clears throat> I think of this, or be understanding. Um, that means good bedside manner. Know and remember that the work is very hard to do, and the person across from you has put a ton of effort into uh, whatever they're presenting to you, actively trying to make things thing possible. Also remember, um, I think Jad uses the term the German forest. Ben Calhoun calls it the pit of despair. You are going to be getting stuff from people who are deep in the middle of the pit of despair, lost in the German forest, and you can't necessarily be the path out of it, but your job is to try to provide a map, to try to help people get through that to the other side. Um, be understanding also means like, try to be understanding, as in actively try to understand what's being played for you. Don't be a lazy listener. Try to figure out what the producer's trying to do, even when it's a total mess. Um, this is not everybody's philosophy. Uh, there is a philosophy that you should approach these things as a naive listener, as a dumb listener, so that you don't gloss over missing details or subconsciously fill in details. Um, I don't like that philosophy uh, because I think you're guaranteed to get it wrong most of the time. You're either going to skew to being not dumb enough or too dumb. Um, and that, and out of the two, there's more danger in being, you know, pretending to be too dumb of a listener, too naive of a listener, um, because you'll start ironing out the piece and filling in details that don't need to be filled in. And, um, and so I have two solutions for that naive listener problem. One is uh, just don't let it happen. Just like, be very aware uh, and listen as yourself. Um, and two is to find somebody, if you need, who listens differently than you do. Um, I worked with somebody who wasn't an editor, uh, but had a pretty good editorial mind um, and had one of the 
the worst attention spans of anybody I've ever met. And I have a terrible attention span, and so I know of what I speak. Um, and so sometimes I'd play him stuff, and he would, you know, halfway through, start checking his phone, get up, walk around the room, um, and that was fine because that's what I wanted him there for. I could see him do that, and all I had to do was like take notes and find my trouble spots because that's where he was getting lost or getting bored or just abandoning it. Know your audience. Um, you're going to notice a theme through this presentation of me saying similar things in different ways because I think they're very important. Um, so by know your audience, I mean be super mindful about uh, what level the person that you're working with is at. Um, that way that, uh, the way that you help someone who is just starting out is very, very different from the way you help someone who's been working on this stuff for their entire career. Um, at Gimlet, like I said, I've been working on Heavyweight, um, which is hosted by Jonathan Goldstein and, and senior producer is Wendy Dorr, um, who between them, uh, and I, I asked them so I can confirm, they have over 250 years of radio experience, just between the two of them. Um, I'm also working on a show called Twice Removed, um, which comes out in December. And, and some, for some of the producers on that show, this is their very first job in radio. Um, so I regularly jump from edits with someone who's hosted his own show for 11 years into an edit with somebody who was in a completely different field eight months ago. Um, and that requires you as an editor to have more than one approach. Um, so somebody at some point, I don't know who, um, and I don't know when, uh, took a management course, um, poor bastard, and one of the handouts in that management course was this. Um, and this is a way of classifying people, uh, which is what we should all strive to do. Um, uh, but it's basically, this is, a, this is jargon and management jargon, um, but it's very, very, very useful for, for thinking, uh, at, don't think of it as worker bees, think of it as producers and reporters and the people that you're working with. Um, so there's four boxes. Enthusiastic beginner, disillusioned learner, capable, cautious performer, self-reliant, achiever. Um, dis, uh, enthusiastic beginner, somebody who's really new to the gig, uh, has a ton to learn, really eager to learn about it and to learn from you. Uh, disillusioned learner, someone who's been at it for a little while, months, a year, you know, a year, in some, some jobs, in some places, many years. Um, that's, you know, they're making mistakes, sometimes feel like they're never going to get it, uh, are, are discouraged. Um, the, the capable, cautious performer, they've gotten out of that deep trough of sorrow, uh, pretty good at their job and self-confident, um, but still tentative, um, self-critical. And then the last box, which is the expert, the people that are doing the radio doctor classes and the pitch sessions uh, down the hall. And then this is the sort of analog. Um, this is a guide for how to approach people at each stage in, in sort of their experience. So with the beginner, um, be, a teacher, be a teacher first and be direct. Don't be afraid to tell them what to do uh, as long as you're explaining why. 
help them understand how long something should take, help them, help them map out the process. They don't know and they want to know and they want to learn. This is where you, where you take the keyboard, where you make the cuts yourself with them sitting next to you. Um, disillusioned learner, right? That's that person who's been at it, has gotten to a certain point, and then is, is coming up against the wall. Um, and this is, sort of think of this as coaching. So you're also teaching, but it's a little bit less hands-on. Uh, it's more that like Socratic teaching that your best professors were really good at. Um, getting you to come up with the thought and make the connections. By you, I mean the producer. Um, and you as the editor are still hands-on, uh, but you're mostly you know, making sure they're moving in the right direction. Um, capable, cautious performer is starting to push the person out of the nest. Uh, you're doing more listening, helping shape their ideas, acting as a sounding board, um, but still sort of giving them the guidance. And then finally, there's the person who's been doing it forever. In this case, you're just supporting them. You're a resource. Uh, and hopefully, you know, treating them as a collaborator and as a peer. Um, does that make sense as a construct? Um, so that's helpful to think about in particularly in like early parts of the of the editing process like when you're shaping stories and and working with producers and thinking about structure and themes and all that um it's but i think it can be applied in in lots of different ways as well and so i'm going to give you examples from uh how how i do that how i use when we're doing like sort of copy editing or editing drafts, um, how I apply those thoughts. Um, and I think the examples are all from Google Docs, which we use a lot. Um, so like I said, when somebody's in that first box, rewriting, taking the keyboard, directly making changes to the script, to the session, being directive, um, but also showing what you're doing, showing them why you know, letting, letting them try things out, but, uh, but doing it yourself. Um, strike through and bold. So I'm just going to turn and look. This is a, I, I use this a lot with um, people who sort of, who are in that second box, right? Where I want them to be able to make changes, but I also want them to, um, to have to do the work to make the changes. So I'll strike through cuts, I'll put things in, in bold that I, you know, I'll rewrite things and put them in bold. Um, and so I'm still working with them, or, you know, doing a lot of the work uh, of the edit, but letting them be a part of it um, in some psychological way. Um, suggest mode, track changes, that is exactly the same thing, it's just using a totally different tool. And this takes, uh, it gives them the authority, right? There's like a little X, and if they hit X, then the thing that I changed goes away. If they hit check mark, then it, then it happens. They can see like the changes, they can see the, the, the way that I'm thinking through something, but they are getting, but they can reject it. And that's, I think, for people in that third, third box. Um, there's also crazy writing. Um, this was uh, a producer came into 
um, a session and really needed a really needed a transition. She wanted a transition between these two thoughts, and we talked about it. And then I wrote out this sentence, and I wrote it, and I habitually write it and misspell everything, put it in all caps, and that's because I want her to know that this is the idea that we're working on, and I am putting it out there, but not with any authority. Like, in order for this to make it into the script, to be a part of the story, she has to take it and turn it into writing. Um, perhaps a better example is this, um, which is like a whole scene that needed to happen. And so we talked it through, and I wrote all of this stuff up. Um, as you can see, it's going to be an amazing scene. Um, but there's like no way that this can end up in a script, right? This is, if this person were in box one, we would have talked about it and we would have written it up and that person would have left the edit with this thing finished. This is when some, once somebody has gotten to that point, you want them to be able to, you want the edit to be sharing ideas, getting to a place and then sending them off into the world to make it happen. Um, and then <laughs> comments. This is for like people in box three and box four. This is just, here's what we talked about, or here's my idea, you go and make it. This is the exact same thing as this. It's just that for some people in their careers, it's a lot, this is going to be anxiety inducing. And for people further in their careers, this is going to be insulting. So it's just tailoring your strategies to where people are. Um, and then this is, so this is like a page from a heavyweight script and, a, and I think pink is Jonathan Goldstein and green is me and we're just sitting across from each other and just writing together and changing each other's sentences and going because there's confidence on both people's parts. We know we're a team, we know, have the sense of where things are going and, and that's all we have to do is execute. Um, this is what I call McCuning. Just, I like this. This is how Marianne McCune um, edits stuff. And I think that uh, somebody told me that it's very similar to KQED and other NPR stations. Um, but I think she, uh, Mary, Marianne McCune is um, if, a genius, by the way. So, and she also has a great third coast that you should listen to. Um, but what she does is... Uh, she puts things directly into the script, and she mixes sort of all of those, um, all of those strategies. So all caps and in bold, that is a sentence that she's written that she's added. Square, three square brackets over there, that's a cut. In parentheses, which all caps, that is, I want you to fill in this information however you're going to. Uh, this one is, I believe, uh, pointing out a sentence, and then in all caps, this is her saying, you, you've got to fix this sentence to do this thing, right? Um, this is like crazy making to me, but incredibly, she make incredibly useful to the people that she works closely with. Because again, it's just really pouring through the script and figuring out when you have to be directive and when, when people can do, you know, when you can let people be themselves. Um, all right, how are we doing? Does that stuff make sense so far? All right. 
then let us continue. Some general rules. Trust your producers. Um, so unless they tell you otherwise, believe that the people that you're working with ha actually have a story and an idea, a thing that they are trying to say. Um, sometimes it's hard to find in the work. Um, but more than once I've seen an editor uh, come into a piece and just start moving stuff around, rewriting without understanding what the producer is trying to do. And that's, to be fair, that's usually the producer or the reporter's fault. Um, it isn't clear. But, um, but if the producer doesn't know that their idea is coming, isn't coming through, then, uh, and they see an editor just start moving stuff around uh, herky-jerky and destroying their piece, that is, um, that is, that can be very destructive to them. That is a really shitty day. Um, so if something seems arbitrary, if you, if you get this thing and it just seems like a jumbled mess, um, you have to uh, remember that, remember to ask, which means sometimes you have to interview your own producers. Um, get, them to thing to say, get them to say the thing that you need to hear, right? practice your good interviewing techniques. You might have to ask them a bunch of different ways to get at it. Um, ask them to tell you the story, ask them why it's important, ask them to read, to, to go through the beats, um, beats of it, diagram it, um, ask them what the most interesting like nugget or their favorite moment so that you can start figuring out what the piece is actually about. That being said, also try not to give them obvious suggestions. These are just like general rules of being a good person probably, but within an edit, they are very helpful. So uh, um, asking like super obvious general questions about uh, where a piece is is another way of killing confidence. Um, so instead of asking why, if they scheduled time with Johanna uh, for their historical documentary about the Third Coast Festival, um, which obviously they would have thought of, um, ask them what, what they're working, like what leads their thinking of pursuing? What voices they're thinking that you need to tell that story? Um, let them take the lead so that your suggestions come off as additive and not diminishing. Um, I see this rule get broken all the time and I think that the reason is, um, and I break it as well, and I think the reason is that um, editors often become kind of a co-producer on these pieces um, and, and you want to help and you want to get into the work and that can be very helpful to producers but at times it can also be burdensome. This is an example of those times. So trust your producers. Also don't trust your producers. This is a hydration break. So everybody gets too close to their work. Um, everybody loses sight of what they have, where they're trying to get to, um, what's standing in the way. Um, people especially lose track of decisions they've made along the way uh, as a piece goes from edit to edit to edit to edit to edit to edit. Um, so don't be afraid to ask them to share everything with you. Um, one tip that I often do is like ask them to play, like if we're doing, if we're listening to tape or almost at any time in the process, ask to hear the pieces of tape that almost made the cut. Things that are just sort of hidden in, you know, the last things that they, that they didn't use. Um, things that were rejected along the way. Ask to see their transcripts and quickly scan through them and if you see something that seems useful, ask them, to, ask them why they didn't use it and ask them to play it for you. Um, so you can talk about it. Um, Ask to hear the tape on either side of 
important moments that they've chosen in their piece. Um, this can be shockingly helpful because producers will try something, they'll cut something together, um, and then uh, and it'll sort of work, and then they'll move on. Um, and so, you know, a week later, they won't remember what they did. This happened uh, like last week it, with the upcoming episode of Heavyweight. Um, let's see if this works. Um, the uh, so the next episode of Heavyweight is Jonathan is um, he's it's a very personal episode. He's trying to figure out sort of why he moved away from religion, and he goes and asks his childhood rabbi, for whom he has a lot of respect, um, to try and. We're still a, sh a year shy of going anyway. How old are you, Matisha? If you were calling me, I think 15. I'm 16. 16. You're, tr you're trying to understand what happened. A little bit. I do recall your parents were not supportive. Okay, so did we get the what the heart of that piece of tape was? Let's, I'll play it one more time. Oh, you were still a, sh a year shy of going anyway. How old are you, Matisha? If you were calling me, I 15. think I'm 16. 16. You're, tr you're trying to understand what happened. A little bit. I do recall your parents were not supportive. Okay, so it turns out that the big moment in this story. Uh, as it was as it was created, and this was close to you know final draft, um, was coming out of a moment of small talk, and it's totally buried, and we couldn't figure out how to enhance it um, until we noticed that there was a cut, and I asked Jonathan to pull out the tape around it, um, and this is what was there. Uh, yeah, because I mean I I don't. No, if you're, tr you're trying to understand what happened. A little bit. Right, like, actually, Jonathan was doing this very, very, very difficult thing and having trouble with it, and that was captured on tape. And somewhere along the way, people with 250 years of radio experience had lost track of that, building a scene and doing, you know, every, everything else, getting information that they thought they needed to. But so once you see that, then then it can change everything. And the entire you know, section of the show got rewritten um, and became more emotional, but also more honest. But otherwise, he looks the way I remember him from all those decades ago. We catch up. He tells me about his children and his children's children. And I tell him about my marriage to a Gentile. And even after all these years, I still feel myself fearing his disappointment. I struggle to ask the question I came here to ask. Uh. I mean, I, I don't know if you're, tr you're trying to understand what happened. A little bit. I do recall your parents were not supportive. Right, it, <clears throat> it changes everything. That, I should note, is a rough mix. Um, I haven't been, I, you know, when it comes out on Tuesday, it might be disco or something. I have no idea. Um, but uh, so there's that. Um, Another general rule is to trust yourself, even if it means being terribly, terribly mean. Um, you have to have a strong enough backbone to know uh, when something's not working. Um, and no matter how late in the process you are, uh, you've got to push for, to make the change. Um, this is another story about the great Marianne McCune. Um, she, uh, um, she once took basically 16 months off of my life. Um, because I asked her to listen to 
this thing I was working on, it was a detour, an hour long piece. Um, it was like, I was asking for fine edits. Um, we were getting ready to launch, to publish it. Um, and her fine edit was that uh, the narration and the narrator himself was not only not working, that he was completely irredeemable. That is not a fine edit that you want to get on something that you've been working on for months. Um, and, uh, and that's how blinded I had become to the problems. I was listening to it, working with other people, and wanted it to work so well that I wasn't allowing my inner editor to say, fuck, you have to do this. You have to make this change. Um, and she was, she was right. Uh, she, I'm not going to play you those clips because it's horribly embarrassing. But, um, but thanks to Marianne, I'm, I'll probably die after this session if I was going to die 16 months from now. Um, but if you have to be mean, you have to be mean. Sometimes, sometimes making work good requires it. All right, so actual edits. Um, these are, uh, this is Peter Clowney's four-step process for editing. Um, listen attentively. Uh, take note of what's happening, what's happening to you while you're listening. Um, say back to the person what you heard, um, what it was like for you. Give feedback. Um, he says give feedback not so much about what's good and bad, but what he got excited about. Um, I, I think that depend, you know, where you, depending on where you are in the process, you can give feedback about what's good and bad. But, um, but he's talking about the very top. And give a couple of sweeping statements at the top. What's strong? What gives you joy first? What was the experience of listening? And then step three is to just like dive into the questions. Things that I wondered about. Things I didn't understand. Uh, questions that are you know, sort of driven by confusion. But also in trying to get answers to those, asking about the reporter's sort of experience of creating the piece um, of, and of listening it. Um, and then taking notes on the language that the reporter uses and, and, and writing it that, that down, taking notes so that you can then reapply it in the writing. Um, and then four is coming to answers down here. Um, she says, if you do the first three well, then this part can just be tilling the soil. Um, it's not here's what you need to do, but, but here are possibilities while keeping attention to like, what's triggering the producer um, who knows the piece as well as anybody. Um, he also came up to me before the session and said that, that actually number four, the, the most important thing about number four is having a vocabulary. Um, to know, to actually know what's, what works and what doesn't work, and to be able to talk about it and explain it, and that the way to get to that point is to listen constantly, to listen to things all the time, and steal what you need to, um, so that you can help guide people. Um, and then making sure that there's clarity on what comes next, what was decided, like where the piece is going, so people have a roadmap. Um, very briefly, um, people uh, will tell you over and over that experiencing a piece the way it's going to be consumed is really important, meaning that if it's, um, if it's audio, then you should listen to it. Um, at Detour, where we were making these walking tours, that meant doing walking edits. So uh, the editor would go out into the neighborhood, producer would call them on the phone, and read the script and play tape while you were walking around. Um, because 
that's the way you consume detours. Um, and they were by far some of the most informative and productive edits I've ever been a part of. Um, they were also the only edits that I've ever done in the rain. Um, and the same is true for regular, linear, you know, news and, and documentary audio. Listen to the thing. Um, I like to listen with just the producer at first, and then as you go through more edits to bring in other people who haven't heard the piece. Um, which is, and once, but keeping in mind that once you do that, then your role as editor changes. Um, you are less an editor and more of a moderator, and you have to make sure that you're controlling group feedback um, so that it stays useful and doesn't go off the rails. So when you're thinking about bringing other people in, that is a thing to very much keep in mind. Your status changes, so the piece should be in a place where that's, where that's okay. Um, and another important note, be really uh, thoughtful about when you're bringing new people in to listen, be thoughtful about the kind of feedback that they can give. So if you're looking for high-level feedback, you bring in somebody with experience. Um, if you're looking for feedback of this made me feel X or this made me feel Y or I was you know, bored here or I didn't understand, then you can bring in somebody with you know, the person from marketing or your friend from apothecary school. Um, but bringing that person in to an edit where you really need sort of high-level feedback is going to be not help, helpful to them, not helpful to the process, and not helpful to the producer. Um, group edits. Um, group edits are great. <laughs> Say it with me. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm going to request that we cut that response from uh, <laughs> um, the people who are great at them are really great um, and uh, and they should and that's the thing not everybody is great at them uh, they can be really difficult but they can save a lot of time. This is not a small point when you're making a lot of, when you're working with a lot of people and working on a lot of stuff. Um, being able to like listen something through, have a discussion about it, and then go on to the next thing, that's really helpful to both you and the people that you're working with. Um, they bring in more ears and brains to listen to a story, which means more opportunity to hear problems um, that have been overlooked and to improve the piece um, and to, and to um, avoid, you know, to fill in your blind spots. Um, if you're working with a lot of new producers, having them in the room can give them the opportunity to hear works in progress, let them see the, the vegan sausage being made. Um, if you've got a group that works well together and is experienced and has a shared vis vision, then this is like almost absolutely the way to go. Um, that heavyweight clip I played earlier came from a group edit. There was five people there. Um, and we listened to it, we had a lot of feedback, and, and, but then we just started working on it together. And that thing that I played, that happened during like a four hour, just all of us jamming on this thing together, <clears throat> trying to solve the problems that we'd identified. That's not something you're going to be able to do with every group. Um, group edits, not so great, say it with me. I can, see, I can see where the voting is. Um, so, what are the problems with group edits? They can become performative exercises, right? Um, 
people feeling like they need to contribute, people feeling like they need to parrot what other people are saying. Um, they can actually take a whole lot of time, if, uh, especially if um, you're only getting it at bigger surface level issues. Um, it's not always easy to get fine-grained, um, which can make it sort of more difficult to move things forward. You have a bunch of people listen to it and everybody's like, yeah, it's kind of working or not working, but you don't, it's hard to, it can be very hard to get into the structure of something and really make it better. Um, there can be pressure to build consensus, to work things out in the session rather than just take notes and return to a one-on-one -on -one edit, which depending on the situation, I think can be much more helpful. Um, and, uh, and the pressure to build consensus means that a couple of things can happen. Either people with sort of different ideas might stay silent, which is counterproductive to like their sense of awesomeness and also the piece becoming awesome. Um, and it can also lead to everything sounding the same. Um, they can feel exclusionary and, uh, and they can go off the rails entirely if they aren't carefully calibrated. So um, this is what I mean when I say having to go from being an editor to being a moderator. Um, I completely horsefucked an edit about two weeks ago. Um, I was with, uh, um, that's an old radio term. I don't know if, uh, uh, um, but it was a producer, a senior producer, and a producer from a different show. Um, and we listened to this piece, and at the end of the piece, everybody was, like the response was pretty unanimous. Like all we need is, this is just needs some like a copy editing, a few sentences here and there, and it is good to go. Um, and then we started doing that, and then one person had an idea, and someone else thought, why not try it? And then big chunks of the thing started to get moved around, and then a couple of central ideas of the piece got basically not just struck through or suggested away, but just deleted off the page. Um, and it was all like very smart, very eager, very experienced people trying to make this thing better. Um, but at a certain point, I looked over at the producer and, and just saw the panic on her face. Um, and, uh, and so the last 10 minutes of this edit ended up being me realizing what had happened and then just having to walk us back through all the work that we had just done, ruining this thing that had been pretty good. And then the 10 minutes after the edit was me apologizing to the producer for letting that happen. Um, because that was my responsibility, even if I wasn't driving those changes. I wasn't recognizing that we weren't doing the thing that we'd all agreed to do, we were doing something different, and in that, we were losing what was good about the piece. So don't do that. Um, so this is, now we're just going through tips and stuff. Um, two questions that I like to ask, yes? That is, um, yes. So, it, so there's a, yeah, yes. I mean, it, it, everybody has their style. I think ideally, so ideally, yes, there's a person that is leading um, and, and there are people that are, and they're listening along with everybody else, but they're the person who is in charge of like getting the, getting, of leading it, getting information from everybody, hearing what people thought, making sure that, um, that the responses 
are as helpful as possible. So if somebody says something and there's like a kernel there, getting more out of it and getting sort of the group involved. And, uh, and yeah, that person sh has to, should have the final thought. Hopefully if it's going well, then the like it just becomes clear and everybody is, it's all about creating collaboration. Um, but with that in mind, this is, there's a couple of things that I do that are very, very, very simple that help you get there. And one is to ask like the percentage done question. Um, so I do the, you should do this, this is also something I stole from the internet. Um, and I don't know from who, but it's really helpful. Um, not just in edits, but when, when somebody asks you for feedback on anything, I always ask them like what percentage done do you think this is? Is it, how long, far long is it? Is it at 30% done, 50% done, 80% done? Um, and the reason why is that this gives you an idea for what kind of feedback they need. Um, so if they tell you something is at 20% done, then you know that you're gonna be talking about structure and about like big things and you're not gonna be bothered with, with copy editing and wordsmithing. If something is at 80% done, then you know that you, that's, the big stuff is not what you should be listening for. What they're looking for is refinement. Um, you know, rewriting things to make it clearer and more pronounceable, et cetera. Um, and let's see. Um, and I, that's in, particularly important for me because I know like what I like to do. I am a tinker. I like to make the perfect cut. I like to make the perfect sentence. And if uh, if I start doing that at when somebody is at a needs something completely different, when they need me to say you don't, you know, the, the idea that is at the center of this piece needs to be expanded on or has to change in some different way, then I'm completely wasting their time. And um, and the opposite is true. Um, so let's see. Um, that makes sense to everybody, yes? Um, another reason for asking that question is because uh, it gives you a sense for where they think the piece is. And sometimes somebody will tell you that something's at 70% or 80% and then you'll hear it and it will not be there at all. And if your first response is to say, when they're expecting you to say, it just needs some copy editing. Your first response is, we've got to lose eight minutes out of this thing. Um, having that information ahead of time allows you to deliver that news in a way that doesn't you know, just destroy the producer in the process. Um, uh, the other question is, like, what do you want me to focus on? Um, is there anything you want me to focus on in particular? Anything that you're worried about? Um, in her Third Coast presentation, Deborah George, uh, said that she prefers the producers not come to her with like any excuses or caveats or introducing the piece, just play the thing. Um, I, th and I think that is good and true, um, but this is something different. This is uh, asking them to be specific about the things that they're worried about um, to think and the things that they need help with. Half the time you're just gonna forget that. Um, as soon as, they, as soon as you start listening, but that's not the point. The point is to get a sense of where they think they are with it, to see what their blind spots are. Because um, if they tell you that they're worried about transitions or the ending doesn't hit hard enough, um, again, and, and actually the change is really drastic, you'll have that information ahead of time and you can, um, and you can, you can be thoughtful about how to direct the news. Um, what else do we have? Um, 
be mindful of voice. Um, this is your voice, especially, um, and not falling in love with it, right? Your job is to maintain the voice of producers or reporters or help them uh, develop one of their own if they haven't yet. Um, it's really easy to fall into the trap of turning everything into sounding like you. Um, and house style absolutely needs to be broken sometimes. Uh, nobody wants to just be stamping out widgets or sprockets every single day. Every now and again, you go ahead and stamp out a, a wicket or a sprocket. Um, be honest. Um, once you hear the piece, it's okay to tell them that it's good. Uh, it's okay to use a dumb cliche like, uh, this is in really good shape, um, but only if it's true. Uh, if it's terrible, you can go ahead and um, tell them what's good about it first, but uh, it doesn't help anybody to not be honest about what is working and what's not working and what needs to happen. Um, this is good for the producer. To remembering this is good for the producer, it's also good for you um, because uh, it'll keep you from falling in love with this weird idea um, that being nice means that you're coddling, um, pointing out that uh, what's good about a piece is, is just wasting time. That's like a, a dark path to going... Uh, that's a dark path for you as an editor because it, you will go into edits thinking, uh, I'm going to fix this thing when what you want to do is to go into edits thinking, I'm going to make this thing better. Um, so there's that. Um, so uh, this, <laughs> there's nothing, I don't think, terribly groundbreaking um, in these photos other than that I've created my own written language that nobody else can understand. Um, but so, this is a... Um, these are notes from, uh, like, basically this hour-long piece, uh, an assembly, uh, listening, like, basically the first assembly. Um, what I try to do is for sort of every, if I can, for every sentence, but if not for every sort of thought, piece of tape, moment, I try to at least get like one word down. Um, I run a timer and I write down like where we are, you know, whenever I can. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be related to the thing that I'm listening to. It's just to sort of keep a running time so that I can go back when I'm looking at this and thinking about, you know, where we're going to cut half an hour from this what's supposed to be a 60-minute thing, I know. And then I'm writing down moments that are sort of, like, confusing to me, um, things that, you know, just, like, broad, like, this whole section needs to be cut. Uh, here, uh, there was... <laughs> it says uh, map tape, and in parentheses, meh, and then a star meaning that meh is very important. But then the idea was like, we have to go straight to this one piece of tape. Um, maybe move this thing to the top. Um, these are like sort of like big, broad things that I'm listening to as I go. But mostly it's just like a mad scramble to get, every, to get down to like actively listen to and to put question marks and stars and things where so I can go back and be like, oh, right, I didn't understand this, or this piece of tape wasn't working, or um, et cetera, et cetera. So that is that. 
Um, this is basically notes from that same piece, but uh, yes, uh, one, one. So you're not editing with a script? Like well, so yeah, and I'm uh, happy to talk about that. I think, yeah. Um, so I'll go through this, and then I'll really quickly sort of talk about when I edit with a script and when I don't. Okay, great. So this is um, basically notes from that same, that same piece, but like a week later. Um, and you can see like up here, the time notes, time codes are like, we're at like 20 minutes, you know, um, because I'm scrambling and that's when I'm looking to, and thinking about stuff and there's so much to react to and change. Here, it's like, Two minutes, two ten, three ten, three forty one, and the things are like trim, you know, kill Capone, um, which is something you should do in every story that you hear. Um, and this is almost like creating like a transcript, and you're, this is like good progression. Uh, this means that now most of this is just me like writing things down, looking at the time, thinking about how it's pacing out. Um, that means that from the edit before to this, like a lot of good work was done. Um, this is uh, <laughs> um, this is from an edit that I was brought into. Um, really, I when I'm not just scrambling and listening, I I write like Thomas Jefferson. It's beautiful. Um, uh, but this is, I came into an edit, this was a story I'd, I, for another show that I was brought in to be a new listener. And I think I asked at what percentage and they thought that, they told me that it was like at 60 or 70 and I think it turned out to be very not that. And so as, this is sort of me um, doing what I was talking about. But then as I realized that, like really just going into like big questions because I realized that the thing that was going to be helpful with me for this was actually actually talking about the structure of the piece, what where it was going, what uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, another thing, this one is very weird. This piece had like ten different uh, interviewees, something like that, and they all kind of sounded the same. And at a certain point, I just started numbering the acts by voice. So, like, number four was talking, number four was talking, number four was talking, um, because it was that was one of the problems with it. Um, this is uh, like an actual script. So, this is also from this heavyweight that's coming up, um, and. I was doing an edit with Jonathan and I was listening to this thing and this, it's a really lovely piece that comes up but there's, especially at the beginning, um, lots of different, it was all, it's all him standing in front of a building in Brooklyn but there's moments where he's standing in front of that building at age 15, there's moments where he's standing at that moment of, in Brooklyn now, stand, in being in Montreal at age 15, being in Montreal at age 14 or 16, being in Montreal now, and it started to get incredibly confusing to me, and I realized that as I was doing like my mad scramble, I was totally getting lost. So I knew that I had to diagram it, but I didn't, we didn't need to like put it on a whiteboard and diagram the whole thing. I needed to diagram it for myself so that I could get a sense of what the structure was. Um, one, two, 
and this is where like Jonathan is in that fourth box. So this is, piece is really personal to him and he didn't want me futzing a lot with the language. He'd worked on it a lot and I knew that if I did this on Google Docs, like I will just, this is knowing yourself, I will be tempted to start rewriting lines and thinking about this. So I printed it out which let me, and this is sort of me being like, okay, 15, he's in Montreal, 15, he's on his trip, 15, he's in New York, he's an adult, he's in New York, etc. But it also just let me um, leave my edits to like the big things that needed to change and not sort of like the finicky stuff. Um, so those are some ways that I take notes. Okay, we're going to take a little break and come back with the Q&A from this session. Be back in a bit. You're listening to Chicago's Progressive Radio Adventures. This American life, I might reply. The show about all the unseen. Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast's podcast, Resound. Resound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Um, it's a little bit of a weird question, okay. but, and it's a two-part. All right. There's no such thing as two-part questions. The what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, my question is, what are some common mistakes that you see editors, particularly first-time or new editors, make? And the theoretical second part of that question uh, was... As a reporter or producer, what are some kind of defense mechanisms against perhaps bad editing? 
What are some mistakes? I mean, I, th I think I, I, I tried to list a bunch of mistakes. I mean, I think that they are um, not listening, like openly not coming at the piece in, you know, coming at it at the stage that it needs to be, not, um, not, not allowing, you know, coming in with like a, with too ingrained or too solid a, a vision of what the structure of this thing is or what this thing should be and not being open to listening to, to other ways of doing it. Um, I think those are mistakes an editor makes. I think there's other opposite mistakes an editor makes, which is not being directive enough, not just saying, you know what, sometimes you producers and reporters and writers and everybody else are just like terrible and you suck and are garbage and your idea is dumb and I'm going to make it better. I think it's, I mean, not in those words, um, but I think people err most frequently on both sides of this. Um, the best thing I think that a reporter can do or a producer can do in any situation where they're feeling like they are not, where they're, if you're coming out confused from an edit, that is bad. And that confusion can come in lots of different ways. It can come in, I don't know what to do next. It can also be, um, I like, I don't, I don't understand, or I was thinking about this in this way, and now this thing has been totally changed. Either way, the best thing that you can do is to like really force yourself to ask the questions to make the editor explain to you what is happening and why, and to assert like your thoughts about it. Assert like you may have done something that doesn't work, but but you, if you did it for a reason that you think is important, explaining that because the easiest thing for an editor to do is say this doesn't work. Let's make this piece work. It's harder for an editor, especially if doesn't know or she don't if the editor doesn't know why that's in there, it's harder to say for, for the editor to help you figure out how to make the thing work with this in it or with this idea. So that is a thing. Um, also, yeah, bringing in, if, just like editors can bring in other people, if you are having trouble communicating with your editor, you can also ask to bring in other people. Um, it may help or it might not, but just, you know, a lot of editing is about, like, communication. A lot of it is about sort of social dynamics, um, and you are able to affect those as much as, or more as the editor. Yes? Can you talk about really short pieces, editing really short pieces, like a minute? Uh-huh. Um, I am not the best person to talk about uh, editing really short pieces, like a minute, um, although I've done it. But so what's your question about that? Um, with such a small amount of time, what's the most effective way to make needed changes? I mean, I think that the, it's, I guess, figuring out like what, what this piece has to do, right? If it's, like, if it is, clarity of information, then clarity of information. Figuring out if, one of the best ways to learn like structure when you're starting out is 30 second promos or minute long promos, right? That's like a thing that people do. Um, and it's because the struct, you know, you can do like a beginning, a middle, end, or you take a piece of tape and you put 
the thoughts around it and you create your thing. Um, I don't see why uh, you can't think of minute-long pieces in some ways in the way that you think about um, longer pieces, which is like basically diagramming out what, what needs to happen, being very clear. Um, I don't know. There's, yeah, I'll think about it, and I will welcome any answers. Um, yes, and yes, and yes. Okay, so the question is, what tips do you have for people who have to be their own editors and who don't have a team? My first tip is to listen to uh, that Deborah George um, thing because she talks a lot about that and her guidance is to people to become their own editors. Um, the uh, next tip, and I forgot to mention this uh, at the beginning, there's uh, the ntraining.npr.org, I guess, or com, has like actually really helpful, like simple sort of laid out um, uh, documentation on a lot of things, and their editing stuff is really good. Um, but beyond that, I think making sure that you're listening like an editor. So, so doing all of those things that I told yourself, being mean to yourself when you need to be mean, like strive to be understanding, to like listen to the thing in as distance away as possible, scrawl your notes, do all of that stuff, at, listen actively, but also find people who you trust, explain to them what you're doing, make them read the NPR training stuff, that might be like the most useful um, use for that is to make your friends read that stuff so that they can come and listen to it with like a framework for what they're what they need to do. You know, those are some ideas. Hey, so hey. my question is about second and third and fifth and tenth edits, um, and whether you have tricks or tips as to um, first of all how not to use the first edit that you saw as a baseline and then just see that there's some, it's improving, but sort of, it's hard to judge whether it's actually reached a level which is good and also how to avoid kind of frustration about, you know, suggestions and comments not being taken into account and, um, and, and how to basically, how to see the piece as a new piece each time, each time again. Um, okay, so how to... Like how to sort of work, how to work through it and come at it clearly as it evolves, and also how not to um, be offended by paths not taken. Is that? Yeah, just to see it, see the the fifth edit of this story that you've now been following for a month um, as the first time that you're seeing it and, and evaluate it uh, on its own merit without kind of considering everything that had gone on before. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think that th this is going to be the least satisfying answer of all time, um, but willing yourself to do that and uh, attacking, attacking it in the same way. So, um, like those, you know, the, those notes, um, you know, I was attacking, I was listening actively, putting myself in the same framework for this edit as I was for this one. Um, and I think just, so that's helpful. Like not, you're, 
you set the expectations for what is gonna what you're expecting out of the edit at the beginning of it, but once you're in there, you should be treating it in the exact same way. Um, but beyond that, it is and th there is an art to this, and I haven't I don't have like a formula for it, but knowing when to bring in another person, when to bring in other listeners to make sure that you're maintaining that perspective, that things aren't lost. In the last heavyweight, which I'm is, uh, really proud of, somewhere along the line, a crucial line of script got lost. And it just left the entire thing, you know, this really central question to the piece unanswered. Um, that we, were, we had just become too insular. We totally, all of us missed it. Yeah. Right. So, so, this is, um, so the response was uh, by the like second or third edit, your outside listener can be helpful. By the tenth or fifteenth, like you're basically be part of the problem. And I think part of that is like that establishing a structure where you do not have ten or fifteen edits, right? Where you um, are created. I mean, yes, because that will like kill everybody involved. Um, but also because things have to progress, um, and if they can't progress, uh, they, they, they have to die. That's one. Also, like, it is insane what degree, I don't know, there is like a shared strand of DNA among almost all of us who work in here of just total perfectionism. Um, and I have it, and so many people I work with have it, and that is a thing that you have to sort of actively keep in check. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, the um, if, you get, if you get to a place that, you know, you've gone through three or four or five edits and you still need more edits, that means that the piece has, is fundamentally broken or you're being uh, too finicky. Maybe you're not trusting the producer. You know, you're, you're trying to make the language perfect. Um, in terms of bringing other people into the edit, that can be super problematic. You have to figure out when to do it. And part of that is figuring out who, I think like you asked, who has the, um, I don't know, maybe you didn't, um, like who's, who's running the edit and who has like the, who has stakes in the story. So if you're a senior producer and you're editing a producer and there's a host or an editor who is going to have like important things to say about it, bringing that person in too far along the process is gonna be, can be disastrous because they can come in and just say, this is not the piece that I wanted or this is not gonna work. Bringing them in too early can be a waste of their time. Um, it's a, a, a thing, that's figuring out your team um, and then, yeah, acting on it. Okay, so, okay. Um, do you have any like, specific tips for dealing with like a, a really big ego? <laughs> <laughs> like any specific things to say or talk to someone that way? Um, uh, do I have specific tips about dealing with a very big ego? Um, <laughs> I think that... Uh, um, I don't know if I have specific 
tips. Um, only to say that um, only to say that like the bigger the ego, like kind of the easier they are to predict, and that if you're really instead of going at it with fear, if go at this person with strategy. Um, read, just start reading online about how to deal with difficult personalities because people have the same, uh, there's, people are susceptible to the same things. So like flattery, figuring out, I mean, an important thing is figuring out how to get a, something that you want done or a suggestion to come out of their mouth so that it feels like their idea so that they have buy-in. And that part of that is checking your own ego, right? Being an editor like, is a lot about you know, checking your own ego um, because sometimes you basically make something and you're never going to get credit for it and it has to be okay. Um, I mean, you can bitch about it a little bit, but, uh, you know, uh, so I should say that. But I guess my biggest tip is not to go at it with, through fear, to go at it through, through complete and utter, total, just hard-boiled strategy. You figure out if if they're in a, you know better mood on Wednesday mornings for some reason, uh, or if you know the, your edits go better with them after lunch, and you start scheduling things there. You you know lots and lots of things, but it's mind games. But it's really just like ex taking the all of your empathy, and instead of applying it to, in the ways that we think about applying empathy, applying it to somebody who, like, we think doesn't deserve it. I mean, I'll do all the questions, but uh, I, I don't want to, but I want you to move the microphone around so that I don't skip people. And w while you do that, I'll, uh, um, while you find out who's going to ask next, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to, if lunch is happening, I'm happy to answer more questions. Um, so whatever. But uh, people were asking about when I use scripts and not use scripts. Um, and so I like to have a script around. I like to listen not looking at the script. Um, and then when, I'm when we're working on the piece, I like to have a script to refer to. Um, when people are uh, doing like select tape selects, um, so if it's like very early in the piece and you've done an interview and you've cut down all your tape, um, I will listen to it in the exact same way, but I like to have a transcript there so that I can look at it and see sort of what I'm missing and ask sort of what is happening. Um, but, uh, and then as we go into like finer edits, as the piece is getting uh, to where it needs to be, then like I work with the script in front of me often. You mentioned this before a little bit, and this is this might be a whole other session. But what are some of the um, what are some of the things that you do to help reporters find their own voice? Like you mentioned, not trying to make everything sound like you. Um, a lot of it is um, getting them to getting them to tell you the story. Sorry. Um, making. Uh, getting them to tell you the story, getting them to 
to and by tell you the story that can that means a lot of different that can mean a lot of different things it can mean just like going through the beats it can be like talking about sort of like what the core thing is um, it can be so that's like one another is um, is you know those boxes aside figuring out when to let them take the lead or when to um, when to like tease out from them what is yeah what is what they're trying to say I mean voice is a lot of, a lot of different things it's style it's like how you write it's how you look at the world um, and so I think there's probably different ways of 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 drawing that out of people from each one of those but mostly it is uh, seeing what they're doing and if it's being able to recognize if it's fitting into a format that doesn't like feel like them or that the way that the piece sounds is not the way that it sounds when they're talking about it um, that's, that's like a tip that, that there's a problem and then it's just figuring out how to get them to be confident enough to try things out and that is then you know basically giving them the option to to try risk to be risky because they know that you're going to be supportive even if it means that in that being supportive you're you know cutting their beautiful risky pieces of tape out of uh, so we I'm just curious, it sounds like you guys don't necessarily have a formula for when you bring new people into your edit, it's sort of case by case. Mm-hmm. We, we quite often will have our very first draft have everyone take a look at it on team. So five, five folks go through the very first draft. Um, do you think that's a bad idea? Do you think you should start with one, one editor for that first go through? Not necessarily. I mean, I think it depends on, on your team and where people are um, and also what expectations you're setting, right? So, so w- yeah, so I, who's everybody in that situation? Uh, so, so, like, you know, everyone from the executive producer down to, like, our newest producer will sit in and, like, give notes on the first draft. Mm-hmm. So it's, and, it's five of us. Right. And so and a, a first draft is, like, an actual draft with that's written out with acts and tracks and everything else. So we actually, uh, you know, we actually do rough mixes as our first draft. Mm-hmm. And, and this is another thing I was curious to ask you about, is that we... We don't listen together all in a room. Everyone listens in headphones in their own time, and then we come together and give feedback separately. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of in the spirit of that, like listen how you actually consume it. Like it's, sure, you, you don't you don't tend to listen to audio together. Yeah, right. Well, so that's like I think uh, I think we do that with mixes, with but we don't. Our first drafts are never our first mixes. Um, but so. But, I mean, I think it can it can be fine if everybody is collaborating and working on things together. Um, the in those cases, I presume like that the story has gone through this process of you know like of pitch of like meetings about structure, storyboarding, um, diagramming all of that out, and that you're getting to a first draft that is like solid enough to bring everybody in on. Um, in which case, yeah, absolutely. I would definitely, definitely, definitely do that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that seems good to me. We tend to narrow down so that our final draft is just being edited by one person. Uh, but it sounds like you guys will often 
bring in new people right at the end? I don't know if, if right at the end. I think it's more at, more at um, I don't know, like critical junctures where uh, right at the end, right at the end is going to only be so helpful, right? Um, uh, but so like at critical junctures where another voice who might have some, some idea or change to make, uh, like can, there is time for that to be incorporated. Um, but again, I think there isn't a, uh, like a standard way of doing things. Um, and it really, really, really depends on your team. Um, so reply all, I have not been part of their like editing process, although they've told me about it, but um, for they asked me to listen to a piece that they'd been working on because um, they'd been working on it for like a year and uh, and I was not it wasn't like a group editing session or anything. They just wanted like some feedback to see if there was anything that they were missing and I did, and they gave me access to their script um, and I put some notes in there, but i I also noticed that. I think they were like publishing it, you know, like the night that they were publishing it, it was like 5, 6 p.m. and then it was, you know, 8 p.m., 9 p.m. and you could, you could see, you could just sit there and watch like a, like a TV show, like five different people working on this thing at the same time, all editing it together and getting this thing like sort of over the finish line. And I don't, not all of those people were in the same room, but they were collaborating because they had been working with this piece for a long time. They have a shared vision. They have like trust and a th presume, maybe I'm right or maybe I'm wrong, like that there's also at a certain point like veto power. But that was a f wasn't a final edit. That was like a moving edit that was going on all the way up until basically like the, the final mix was done. Um, if you can do that, that's you know, it seems like a lot of fun and also crazy making. Uh, I wanted to ask you about those uh, four boxes. Um, uh -huh. uh, and like specifically like the second box of like a disillusioned uh, learner, which I think is like a category that like none of us like isn't especially attractive and like I, I think that none of us would really want to be there. Um, but the way that that was laid out, it sort of made it seem like, like a, a step in the process. So I, I wonder um, if you think that that's like a kind of phase that everybody needs to go through at some point. And, uh, and, and, I, and I guess this is sort of related to that is like, like how to like get through that phase as quickly as possible or if there's ways to like kind of like avoid the, the, the crappier parts of like uh, having the shine wear off and still needing to learn a lot. Um, so, so yes, I think that everybody goes through that phase. Um, I think that it, it it is just the process of like of like growth and of learning how to do something that is very very difficult. Um, I hadn't thought about it until yesterday, but. Um, uh, my wife was a was a producer at This American Life for a long time, and she was an intern before that. And uh, she wrote an essay for some book that I'm sure you, you can find. Um, that was about a basic. It was a, I think it's a book about mentorship, and it was about um, like 
the feeling of going from being an intern to being a producer at This American Life, um, and like how difficult that is, um, and what had she had to change in herself in order to like make sense of that process. And in retrospect, like what she is talking about is going from box one to box two. Um, there are some places and times in your life where you might feel like you're in box two for you know five, six, seven years. Um, the trick to getting through that is like A, recognizing that it's okay, that you're doing really hard work, figuring out ways of, of, of giving your own self like affirmative feedback um, without, without just purposely disillusioning yourself, and also um, not being afraid to like ask for feedback that, you know, and so that you can create like markers for your own growth and to go back and listen to stuff that you've done before and like figure out like the progress. Um, I mean, I think, but the main thing is really just knowing that this is a thing that everybody goes through. You have to go through it um, and, uh, and it's hard and you'll get out of it. Um, I haven't watched them in a while, but uh, like the Ira Glass like storytelling um, YouTube videos, have you seen those? Like a lot of that is about this process. I mean, he puts it in just in terms of like creativity, but it's about um, you know getting to when you're at that point where everything you make feels like it sucks or you're not there's something that you're not getting, like powering through it and different tips for how to do it. Oh, uh, my wife's name is Diane Cook. Uh, <laughs> she. Uh, she wrote a great book of short stories called Man v. Nature. It's available now. Um, and I'm not sure what the... It was a book that came out maybe last year um, about like, people writing about their mentors. That essay was in. Um, hey, I can make this quick. Um, so I'm just wondering how you approach your or adapt this editing process when time is not on your side. Say you have a deadline coming up, you'd love to do five edits, maybe you can do one or two. Um, how do you approach that? Um, so there was a line that I, that I had in here that I didn't say. Um, I think when it was, sometimes you just have to fix it, right? In like the making things better, like going through and, and, and having that stance uh, versus like I'm just going to take this over and do it. Sometimes you actually just have to assert yourself, right? Um, but that being said, um, if that's like if that's if you're up against like the thing hasn't been finished and you're up against the deadline and it's sudden. Um, if you're working on like much shorter timetables, just as a general rule, then it's figuring out a process that works to get you to get the work done in that time, right? So. So making sure that maybe um, like that first edits are have gotten to a point where they're they're almost you know first mixes you know where the I mean I think there's probably different ways of establishing a process that works depending on the situation. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, but it's mostly just if, if you have to publish every day, um, then figuring out what is establishing what needs to happen in edits, before edits, how... How many? How much time between them, and what has to happen between one and the other, um, in order to for that not to be like a recipe for stress, but actually like a recipe for satisfied work. Um, that's all I got for that. <laughs> Anybody? Nice. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference. Special thanks to Shelley Staffins, who recorded and mixed all of the presentations from the 2016 conference. We'll be back soon with more sessions, but until then, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or have a listen to our other podcast, ReSound, for the best audio stories from around the world. Okay, speak soon. Bye.